My name is Brett Hastings. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and it is always a pleasure and a privilege to be up here to open God's Word to you, to explain what the Lord wants us to learn from His Word. There is no greater joy, no greater privilege, and no greater burden. I am excited to get into the book of Jonah. And I had my own personal reasons for picking the book of Jonah. The last couple books that I've taught through were obscure minor prophets that you all thought I was mad for teaching through. And so I thought I'd do one that was a little more familiar. I also am only going to be preaching for three weeks in a row, taking a break to go on vacation. Josh is going to be preaching and then I'll come back. So I picked Jonah because it's more familiar, easier to pick up after a little bit of a break. And Jonah was on my heart to teach. But it wasn't until the middle of this week that I realized that it crystallized and became abundantly clear why the Lord is having us go through this book. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And that became clear to me this week. I had my reasons, but as I studied this week, it became clear why the Lord, why the Lord wanted me to study this, and by extension, all of you. And that brings us to the first introductory matter concerning the book of Jonah, and that is the purpose of the book. What is the purpose of the book of Jonah? There are many suggestions to this. Some have suggested that the purpose of the book is to explain unfulfilled prophecy. That is to say, how can God pronounce destruction upon Nineveh and then not destroy it? But that question is never actually answered in the text. It's just proposed in light of what is said. So the purpose of the book can't be to answer a question that it doesn't actually answer. Some say that the purpose of the book is to highlight the struggle of divine judgment and divine mercy. Jonah, he couldn't understand how Yahweh, a holy God, could show mercy to such an evil and pagan nation. But again, the book doesn't really answer that question. We just see Jonah upset about that fact at the end that God showed compassion to Nineveh, but he's not inquiring of Yahweh how he could justify such actions. He's just moaning and pouting about it. Leaves us with a question, an unanswered question. And as I have studied it, I would say the purpose of the book of Jonah is to highlight Yahweh's compassion and mercy. To exemplify the point Yahweh desires to show compassion to men everywhere, even the most vile of men. And I would add to that, the book's purpose is to expose within all of our hearts any prejudice against God's compassion. Jonah says, if you're there, chapter 4, verse 2, we didn't read this far, but Jonah said, after Nineveh repented, And God relented from disaster. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This highlights the point of the whole narrative. It highlights who God is. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The whole narrative exemplifies this theological truth. 
Yahweh relents from disaster when people repent of their wickedness. Yahweh loves to show compassion to men, even Ninevites. The heart of the message is in this verse and in the final verse with that rhetorical question that he asked Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? And the book ends abruptly for a reason. That rhetorical question is meant to expose within the reader their own prejudices. It's a question to Jonah, but the book ends there. So the question rests on each of our minds and hearts to answer for ourselves. Should God pity the most wicked of people? Is anyone beyond the reaches of God's mercy? So the purpose of Jonah is to reveal that Yahweh desires to show mercy to any in the world who would repent. And who are you prejudiced against that you would put them outside the realm of the possibility of being saved? The result of looking at a book like this should be the softening of our hearts toward the lost. And if you were here last week, Hopefully you see the same providence of God working in all of this. For those of you who weren't here last week, Travis just preached on Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He's riding on the donkey, his triumphal procession. He's coming up over the Mount of Olives, and when the city of Jerusalem comes into view, he can't hold back his tears. He breaks out wailing and weeping. His heart is struck with the coming destruction of the city the destruction of His people because they're going to reject their Savior. He wailed and wept bitterly out of compassion for the lost, the condemnation that was going to come upon them. Not only has the Romans destroyed the city, but their eventual punishment in hell for all eternity. And as Travis mentioned, this compassion moved him to then go preach the Gospel. And Travis's application from Last week was an encouragement for all of us to be soft-hearted evangelists. To let what we know about God, the theology that we know about Him, that Jonah expresses here, that He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, let that wash over our hearts that we might have compassion like Jesus had compassion. The results in speaking the Gospel, preaching the Gospel to the lost. Jonah knew the theology that Yahweh was a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knew this, but it had yet to wash over his heart to soften it towards the lost. Beloved, apparently the Lord is trying to soften our hearts even more to the unbelieving world around us by having us go through this book. This was not my intent, but I must declare what the Lord has intended through the book of Jonah. We must let this book have its intended effect. We must let this theology and this example wash over our hearts to soften them towards the lost. So with that in mind, let's read the verses that we will cover today. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, 
the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now before we get into the text and the outline, there's one more introductory matter that I feel compelled to bring up because it is such a large debate in commentaries. And I've heard things like this recently. And that is the debate of the genre of the book of Jonah. And I feel compelled to talk about this because many of you have come from varying churches. You might have been infected with some of this uh, higher critical genre thinking. Really some Jedi mind tricks that commentators try to play on people. And if it weren't also for the fact that uh, Denver Seminary Professor Craig Blomberg right in our backyard him being one of the loudest voices in this, I might have let it go, but I feel compelled just to address this. Make sure none of you are infected with this kind of thinking about Scripture. And also to inoculate you against such thinking. And it isn't that genre doesn't matter. It does. It makes a very big difference. For instance, we don't interpret Proverbs, which are general truths, to be absolute promises. We understand that as Americans, the early bird gets the worm. That's a proverb. That's not an absolute truth. The first person to a job interview is not always the one who gets it. The proverb to train a child in the way that he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it, that is a general truth. That's generally how the world works. Not an absolute truth, not an absolute promise for your children's salvation. So genre does matter. But if I ask you, what genre is Jonah, what would you say? You might think, well, it's not sci-fi. I mean, there's fiction, nonfiction, historical narratives, poetry, parables, there's allegory, prophecy, didactic teaching, the epistles. But if you're thinking, look, I have no idea what genre Jonah is, and I don't really care. I just read it and believe it. Well, you, you're way ahead of many professors. Because what they have been taught and what they teach, and what they teach other pastors going out into pulpits all around here, is that you can only believe and trust what the Bible says as far as it can be verified from outside authorities. The creation story can only be verified as far as science can prove it, which is why so many have moved towards an evolutionary way of looking at Genesis 1. They say the creation account isn't actually a historical narrative. So they go about discounting the historicity of many texts in the Bible by saying, look, the writers never intended to write history. They were writing in a different genre than historical narrative. The whole creation account is just a parable. And one commentary that I got and am reading through it was on a list of top commentaries for Jonah from a, actually a series of commentaries that I respect. But even this commentator said, look, Jonah's just one big parable. It's not actual history at all. 
And Craig Blomberg, who I mentioned earlier at Denver Seminary, he writes about Job, but applies the same logic to Jonah later. But he says, and I quote, What, after all, is at stake in questions about Job's historicity? The point of the story is that human suffering is a universal phenomenon, and sometimes it is acute, and we all ask why it occurs. The lesson of the book of Jonah, or Job, is that our finitude and fallenness frequently render us incapable of understanding God's ways in such contexts. But God is still sovereign and in all things working for the good of those who love him, Romans 8.28. All this is the spectacular contribution of Job to Scripture, and not a shred of it changes even if the entire book is parabolic rather than history. None of this theology, he says, that we find in Job requires Job to have ever existed any more than the teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan requires a Samaritan to have been a real person. End quote. What does it matter if Job's not a real person? We can still learn all the same theological truths. Yes, but at what point does history begin to matter? Well, even to Craig Blomberg's credit, he says Jonah had to be a real person because Jesus talked about Jonah as a real person. So if we're going to believe Jesus, we have to believe that at least Jonah was a real person. So, Mr. Blomberg says Jonah was a historical figure, but he says the book of Jonah isn't necessarily historically accurate. He says Jonah must be in a genre between historical narrative and parable. What is that genre? Well, he says Jonah, the book of Jonah, just this book in all the world, is in a genre all its own. And only some of it has to be historically accurate. He says, If Jonah really preached repentance to the Ninevites, must we accept the historicity of the fish story? After all, he goes on to say, this chapter is quite detachable and self-contained. Just remove Jonah chapter 2, he says, and you have the sailors throwing Jonah overboard and the sea growing calm. It's possible that they were close enough once the storm had subsided for Jonah to swim ashore. And Blomberg concludes, Had we never heard about the great fish, we would never imagine anything missing. What he's essentially saying here is, why can't we just believe part of the Bible? Why can't we just explain away the parts that are sensational or offensive to us? And they do it by this shell game of calling different things of different genre. Whatever they can't explain away scientifically or rationally, oh, that's just some other genre. They never actually intended us to read that literally. Never intended us to take that as historically accurate. But don't be fooled while this is put up as a pious and good way to study the Bible. It's an academic way of saying, did God really say? If you're predisposed to believe what you read on the pages of Scripture is just a clear representation of the historical facts, you're way ahead of the game. But if you're predisposed to doubt, you might be infected with this same kind of thinking. And ironically, all of those quotes from Craig Blomberg are out of his book, 
that's titled, Can We Really Trust the Bible? And ironically, he affirms in there, yes, we can absolutely trust the Bible, even if half of the stuff in it that it says isn't true. Beloved, just believe and trust the clear, plain Word of God. Read it as you're naturally predisposed to do, and you will be just fine. Don't listen to those who try to play these mind games. They just don't have the faith to believe what the Bible says. So what genre is Jonah? Well, because I believe strongly in the the plain truthfulness of the whole Bible, and the book of Jonah in particular, and because there are no compelling reasons to view this story other than historical narrative, I affirm that it is a skillfully written historical narrative of a series of events in the life of the prophet Jonah. And yes, God acts in some extraordinary ways, but I believe in miracles. I believe that God intervenes in human history to act to bring about His will. I mean, if you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, what... What is believing in a fish swallowing a guy and God preserving him alive for a few days? Is that too much to believe to be true if you believe in the resurrection? And just to put the icing on the cake here, it's not a blind faith that I believe Jonah is history. The very first word in the Hebrew text of the book of Jonah is a word used throughout the book's at the beginning of a book, to open a book that the Hebrews deemed history. This opening word, Wah-Yahi, is a Hebrew grammatical signpost that says historical narrative here. First word. So let's trust this signpost as we study this book of events. Real things that happened to a real prophet Trusting that there are things that we can learn and apply to our life. But that brings us to the outline. Very simple, three-part outline for the first three verses, one verse each. The commission, the commandment, the callousness. The commission, the commandment, the callousness. Look again at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Apart from that first word that I mentioned, this is a typical opening to a prophetic book, indicating the commission of a prophet. And that makes sense because Jonah is commissioned as a prophet, like Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all have this same phrase at the opening. But it is different. We all recognize this is different because it's a historical narrative. Nonetheless, we have a typical commissioning of Yahweh to his prophet Jonah. And what's interesting in this book is Yahweh and Jonah are the only named characters in the entire book. We get them right up front here. These are the main characters, Yahweh commissioning Jonah for a specific mission. And while some people, I'll spare you all the details, some people find it fanciful that Jonah would be the author of this book, I believe it just fits the pattern of Scripture for the prophet of the book that bears his name. The one who's the main character, he's the one who 
authored it, or at least wrote the material that someone later compiled together. But Yahweh commissions Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah is the Hebrew word for dove. Many have attempted to find some significance with his name, saying that doves are symbols of peace and he was to bring peace to Nineveh. Doves often bore good tidings. Doves are also portrayed throughout Scripture as moaning and lamenting, which we see Jonah doing in chapter 4. So if we can say anything about Jonah's name, it just appears that he seems to be living up to his namesake in a variety of ways. Bringing peace and moaning. But of substance, we are told that he is the son of Amittai. This is important because it specifies him as a prophet mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Take your Bibles and go back, keep your finger in Jonah, but go back to 2 Kings chapter 14. Just to orient you to the time of Jonah, Elisha has just died in chapter 13. The prophet Elisha has died about 15, 16 years prior to Jonah. So Jonah, it's possible he was alive at, the, at least the end of Elisha's life. Hosea and Amos were also contemporaries of Jonah prophesying around the same time period. So look at 2 Kings 14 where we are informed of a little bit more detail of this prophet Jonah. 2 Kings 14 verses 23 to 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So the year that Jeroboam the second comes to power is about 780 BC. And according to these verses, Jonah prophesied that he would restore the northern territory, the northern border, to the extent that Solomon had increased it to in his reign. And this was necessary because in the previous 70 years or so, Ahab died in battle with the king of Assyria taking credit, though the scriptures tell us it was the Arameans that he died under, but the king of Assyria was taking credit. But Assyria had pushed down their borders into the northern kingdom. And prior to Jonah, the time of Ahab, the Assyrians were a powerhouse. They dominated the known world. After the death of Ahab, Jehu was smart. Instead of trying to fight Assyria, he paid them off. He paid them tribute so that they wouldn't come and conquer them. Some of you might be familiar with an artifact that's been found, a black obelisk stone, a tall skinny stone with several different images carved onto it. And there's one of those that has an image carved onto it with one king bowing down to another. And it's got an inscription on it that says it's King Jehu of 
Israel, bowing down and paying tribute to the king of Assyria. So Assyria was a powerhouse conquering everybody in the known world, especially if you didn't pay them off. But in the years following Jehu, leading up to the time of Jonah, Assyria was greatly weakened by rebellions within the kingdom and famines. And there was a period of Assyrian weakness. And this is when Jeroboam was able to push back the northern territories in the northern border, just as Jonah prophesied. But here is important because we see Jonah the son of Amittai, he is chronicled as a legitimate prophet in Israel, a servant of Yahweh. One other small detail from here that becomes important later is that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which is in the northern kingdom. It's actually 12 miles west of Nazareth in the northern kingdom. You can take your Bibles and go back to the book of Jonah. So Jonah was, is described elsewhere as a servant of the Lord. So he's not just someone who failed to obey God, to prophesy what God had told him to prophesy, but he was a servant of the Lord. Here we see his commission from Yahweh to go to Nineveh. The opening verse again makes clear that this is a historical narrative, but it opens with the typical commissioning of his prophet. This prophet, Yahweh calls into service. That brings us to our second point, the command. The commission and now the specific command. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. We can break this verse down into subpoints if you're taking, taking notes to help keep track, but we see here the urgency of the command. We see the destination, the purpose, and the reason. The urgency, the destination, the purpose, and the reason. First, the urgency. He says, arise, go. These are two imperatives that God is commanding him with. And the first Hebrew word is often used in conjunction with other verbs to indicate that there is a need to be a prompt in response. There is a sense of urgency here. Jonah was supposed to drop what he was doing, drop what he had planned for the next year, in fact, and walk 600 miles to Nineveh and proclaim to him, to all of Nineveh, their destruction. Go now, Yahweh tells him. Do not delay. Now we've already framed this to think about our own compassion to preach the gospel to sinners. And while Jonah's problem, we know, with his commission was not leaving promptly. That's not what he didn't want to do. Because he most certainly left with a sense of urgency to flee in the other direction. While that wasn't Jonah's problem, we can still ask ourselves, do we have a sense of urgency about the gospel message we have. While this wasn't Jonah's problem, is that often our problem? Do we have a sense of urgency to sometimes drop what we are doing to show compassion to a lost person and share the gospel with them? Sometimes it's inconvenient. Most likely not as inconvenient as spending a year of your life to preach in a city on the other side of the world. 
But do we make excuses that we have too many other things to do? Are we unwilling to change our plans, to drop what we're doing, to have compassion on people? Are we like Jonah in that we avoid God's command here for a different reason? We just have too much stuff to do. And I fear in the first two words of this verse, only one verse and two words into the book, we already find ourselves confronted with being more hard-hearted, less like Jesus than we would like to admit. Like this commission to Jonah, there is an urgency for us. Jesus could come back at any moment. And are we just eating and drinking and marrying and sleepwalking through life, unwilling to change plans to take to the gospel to those who are near us? Is there any urgency in our life, in our heart? God tells Jonah, up, go, now. Do we have the same, the same sense of urgency within us? I fear we do not. I know in my own life, I need to grow in this. So the urgency, we see that. But then the destination. Arise, go to Nineveh. We first find a reference to Nineveh in chapter 10, verse 11, which describes the founding of the city by a man named Nimrod who also founded the city of Babel. You all know the city of Babel, the Tower of Babel, that whole story. So Nineveh goes back to the time of Babel after the languages were confused and everyone was dispersed. This man founded the city of Nineveh. So it was an ancient city going back thousands of years. But at the time of Jonah, Nineveh was one of the four capital cities of the Assyrian Empire, which was to the north and east of Israel. So this mission from God, up, go, the urgency, the destination here would have been an absolute shock to Jonah. No prophet ever before had ever been called to a foreign land, much less one as wicked as Nineveh. In the Bible, Nineveh is regarded as the seat of the greatest enemy, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Nineveh wasn't just a capital city. It wasn't just one of Israel's enemies. It was one of the capital cities to the most notoriously brutal and barbaric and torturous empires in the history of the world. One commentator says, Assyria was the bane of the existence of everyone in the Middle East. If you would, take your Bibles, go two books to the right, and just read Nahum's description of Nineveh in chapter 3. Just a couple books to the right. Nahum is pronouncing woes upon the city of Nineveh. This is after Jonah has gone to them. They have returned to their wicked ways. Assyria began to dominate in the world again. And their violence spread, and so 
God doesn't send Nahum, but just prophesies through Nahum of their eventual downfall because they return to their wickedness. But look at Nahum 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead bodies. Then look at the very end of this chapter in verse 19. There is no ceasing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? If you think, looking at history, that Mao Zedong was cruel, if you think Stalin was cruel for starving his population, if you think Hitler was cruel for his concentration camps, well, they didn't have anything on the cruelty of the Assyrians. Those dictators, they might have killed more people numerically, but they were not more cruel than the Assyrians. The Assyrians were brutal and tortuous. They would not just conquer, they would torture those whom they gained victory over if you were still alive. They would skin people alive. They would tear them limb from limb. They would spare children the extreme tortures by burning them alive. That was their idea of mercy. And this is just the mild stuff I can mention with children in the room. They were horrific. The things they did were horrendous. So when it came to being an Israelite, looking at the history that we know, going into one of Hitler's concentration camps would look like a day in the park compared to the Assyrians coming to town. Jonah, going into this place, he was an enemy. So you can understand why he was reluctant to go. The Assyrians, they not only did horrendous things, but they would brag about it. In the Assyrian cities, they would have massive walls engraved with battle scenes and the atrocities that they had committed against people. They not only committed these great atrocities, they bragged about their great evil. God called Jonah to go into the den of these wicked beasts. To go into the heart of the Assyrian Empire as an Israelite. After Jeroboam had taken back the northern lands and thrown off Assyrian control, go in there by yourself. The destination that Yahweh called Jonah to was 600 miles away, roughly, walking distance. But worlds apart culturally, and it was into the heart of the most hated enemies of Israel. And likely in previous decades leading up to the time of Jonah, it's likely that Israel experienced the Assyrian cruelty as they took some of those northern territories. Jonah's from that region. It could have been personal for him. He could have had 
grandfathers tortured by the Assyrians. There were likely stories floating around of their atrocities, their cruelty toward the Israelites. And God tells them, I want you to go in there, far away to your most hated enemy. So we can understand why Jonah would be reluctant to go. Not because of the distance, but because of who it was that lived there. This would not be too dissimilar to being called to go to Afghanistan shortly after 9-11. I mean, after 9-11, we had droves of men signing up to go to Afghanistan, but it wasn't to preach the gospel. We understand Jonah's sentiment here. It's easy to understand his reluctance to go, but do we make excuses for our own reluctance? Where are we called to go? Few are called to go to the other side of the world, are we reluctant to go when we are called to go next door to our neighbors or even those near to us, not our enemies, but those near to us relationally to our family and friends? How many of us have similar reluctance to preach the gospel even to those much closer to us geographically, relationally? And while we may not flee running in the other direction literally, Do we metaphorically run the other way by just ignoring it? Talking casually about other things. We rightly look at Jonah with a pretty negative judgment. He blatantly defied and rebelled against a direct command from God. But how often do we do the same as we ignore gospel opportunities that require much less of us? They don't force us to go around the world. They don't force us to drop everything in our life for a year. They don't even force us to face our prejudices. Are we really more like Jonah than we would like to admit? Are we willing to drop whatever we are doing to have compassion on people? Give them the gospel? Are we willing to go even small distances geographically and relationally? Or are we like Jonah, ignoring the call, running the other way? Beloved, let's think deeply about these things and how we do this. I know I have this week. I pray you do as well. So we've seen the urgency, we've seen the destination, but now we see the purpose. The purpose of Jonah going, Yahweh tells him, to call out against it. Some translate this as to condemn. To call out against something is to condemn it. The purpose for Jonah's trip is to condemn the people of Nineveh. To declare that God is going to destroy them for their violence and wickedness. They deserve to be destroyed. God's wrath is coming for them. And I don't need to spend A lot of time on this, as Travis emphasized this when he taught on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but we need to make sure in our evangelism that we are telling people of the consequences of their wickedness. What will result if they reject the gospel? It is no light thing. We must tell the people the dire consequence of failing to repent and believe, of rejecting the gospel, The consequence is a conscious eternal torment in hell. 
We must tell people that the wrath of God is coming for them and that they will be punished for their sins. And it is the fear of God's judgment. The fear of God leads to wisdom. The fear of God's judgment leads to the wisdom of salvation. So we cannot neglect that. But this is the summary purpose God tells Jonah to go. Go condemn Nineveh for her wickedness. Go condemn the people for their personal sins. So do we follow this same pattern in our own evangelism? Yes, God, man, Christ responds. God is holy. Man is sinful. God sent Christ to deliver us from that punishment. Call people to respond. Do we tell them of the consequences if they fail? You will spend eternity consciously tormented. That's the unpopular part of the message. We can't shrink back from that. That's the summary purpose that God sent Jonah to do. But if you have any more questions about that, listen to Travis's messages on the, the rich man and Lazarus. So we see the command here. The purpose is to condemn. And finally, the reason is because or for their evil has come up before me. Has come up. It's a, it's a verb that refers to making one's way up to something. It's used of sacrifices as they would burn them. The smoke would make its way up to heaven. So the imagery is that the wickedness of the Ninevites is rising up before Yahweh as a stench, just like the right sacrifices would rise up to be a pleasing aroma to God. One commentator puts it well when he said, many people in the world today, they think that God ignores what they do. Many believe that God set the world in motion and allows it to continue unnoticed. This text portrays God as one who notices. As a God who is active. And as a God who takes sin seriously. This stench of the Ninevites is rising up before God's presence it must be stopped. His holiness cannot abide Nineveh's wickedness any longer. This dead carcass producing this stench rising up before God in the presence of God must be removed. The holy king will not have it before him any longer. And the stench rising from the Assyrians must have been great and offensive to God. But you know what is far more offensive to God than pagans who have no revelation? It's those who know God's commands and don't obey them. Outright rebellion like Jonah here. High-handed sins, the Scripture calls them. Jonah hearing the direct command from God and running away. So let's be slow to look down on the debased world around us and think much of their stench and wickedness rising up to God when we fail to obey perfectly what we know. When we fail to be compassionate to take the gospel to those around us. Let us be much slower to look upon 
even the whole LGBTQ movement with disdain. It is an abomination to the Lord. But let us not look past our own overlooking of God's Word, our own disobedience. Jonah was neglecting the salvation that he had, the mercy that he received, looking upon the Ninevites with disdain. Let us not be like that. So looking at the command, we can understand and even sympathize with Jonah as to why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. We sympathize because we do the same thing with far less reason. So beloved, let us see ourselves and our own sin with the same disdain we often look upon others with. The same disdain we often look upon Jonah with when we are guilty of doing the same thing. Turning away from gospel opportunities. Turning away from doing what we know to be right in any situation. So we've seen the commission. We've seen the command. All that entailed that command. But now let's look at Jonah's reaction to this command. Where we see the callousness of his heart. Point number three, the callousness. If you're still in Nahum, you can go back to Jonah. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. In the Hebrew text, the first word is the verb, He arose. So when you get to the end of verse 2, God has just commanded him, rise, go. So when you get to verse 3 and it says, he rose, what you expect to hear after that, based on all the other prophets who were obedient, is he arising and going. But the text gives us a little bit of whiplash when it says he fled the other direction. It's supposed to do that for us. We're supposed to be in a bit of shock. So he arose to flee. To flee is a verb that can refer to fleeing from an enemy. It's used of David when he slipped out the window from his house to flee from Saul. The word also can refer to sneaking away from an unpleasant situation. Individuals and collectives run away stealthily from unpleasant and confrontational situations, going from one dominion to pass into another dominion for safety. So Hagar... From Sarai into the desert, Jacob from Esau to Aram, Jacob from Laban back to Canaan, Moses from Pharaoh slipping away, the Israelites into the wilderness from Egypt, Jonah from the Lord here in Tarshish. He's trying to slip away from an unpleasant situation. Jonah thought he was getting away from the presence of God, fleeing for his life. This indicates he thought he'd probably lose his life if he didn't flee. He's foreboding the future, all the, what are the bad things that are going to happen if I go preach the gospel in, a, in Assyria? I'm going to die. I've got to flee. Indicates he feared for his life. Just a lesson we can learn from this. It's always a bad idea to forebode the future, to think about all the negative outcomes that could come when you for trying to preach the gospel. It'll only lead us to follow Jonah's example, buying into all those fears and running away. But what reveals the 
callousness of Jonah's heart here is that his protest to this commission from the Lord, it's nonverbal. He just runs away. You remember Moses, he didn't like his commission either. He stood and argued with God about his speaking abilities and whether he was the right guy. Other prophets were reluctant as well, but none did this. And no doubt Jonah knew of Moses' call. And he knew that there was no verbal argument he was going to win with Yahweh. He doesn't even want to give the Lord a chance to convince him to change his mind, change his heart. He's so calloused, he just up and runs. His heart is so hard, he doesn't even give opportunity for God to change his mind. He isn't even going to entertain the thought of going. He isn't going to be convinced of why he should go to his enemies to condemn them. He refused to be convinced of why the Assyrians should be the recipients of God's mercy. So he ran, hard-hearted and calloused. He hears God's word and he flees to go to Tarshish. While the Bible mentions Tarshish over 30 times, its exact location is still debated Some think it refers to a place called Tartessus in southwest Spain. And some think it refers to Carthage in North Africa, which are both very, very far away from where Jonah is. If it was in southern Spain, it would be like going from New York to Los Angeles. But one commentator notes that the exact location is not needed for the point. The point is that in the mind of the Israelites, Tarshish was known as the westernmost point in the Mediterranean world. In other words, Jonah was fleeing to the ends of the earth in the opposite direction. But the geographical distance from Nineveh to Tarshish isn't the point. In Isaiah 66, 18 to 19, we're actually told about Tarshish. It says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So Jonah was fleeing to the ends of the earth where Yahweh's presence, his glory had not been revealed. Fleeing from the presence, that's where he thought he could get away to, where it had not been revealed yet. But that begs the question as we get to these verses, doesn't Jonah as a good Israelite know God's omnipresent? That there is nowhere you can flee away from his presence? How is it that Jonah can think he can flee from the presence of Yahweh in a faraway land? No one seriously argues that Jonah actually thinks he can get away Jonah acknowledges later to the sailors that his God is the God of the whole earth, the seas, and the dry land. Are we supposed to think that Jonah was surprised when he got on the boat that God was actually following him? I don't think so. And some say that this is just an emphatic way for Jonah to announce his unwillingness to serve God. But I think the, the 
just the fleeing part takes care of that pretty well. I don't think the presence of the Lord is needed for that aspect. The explanation that makes the most sense to me when it says Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, what makes the most sense to me as I've looked at all the the different views is that Jonah was at the temple where the presence of God, the glory of God resided. There are a couple reasons for this. First, in chapter 2, he talks about looking upon the temple again, being in the temple again. He has hope that he will one day return there. But also, throughout all the Old Testament, the place of Yahweh's presence, at least after it came to rest, is the house of the Lord. The law commanded in Exodus 34 that three times throughout the year, for certain feasts, every male was to come to the tabernacle or the house of the Lord, wherever it was, and appear in the presence of the Lord to offer their sacrifices. So many places in Scripture, the house of the Lord is referred to as the place of the presence of the Lord. Another reason I think that this is a reference that he was at the temple is because Jonah went down to Joppa to get on a ship. If Jonah was in the northern kingdom, anywhere near his hometown, this would have been a very strange place to go to get on a ship. But, if he's at the temple, it makes total sense because Joppa is straight west of the temple. Straight west of Jerusalem. If he were further north in the northern kingdom, there were plenty of other ports that he could have gone to. But if Jonah was in Jerusalem at the temple, this makes perfect sense. But I think we can make even more sense of this when he says he was fleeing the presence of the Lord if we understand that it was not uncommon for Yahweh to manifest a physical presence when commissioning his prophets. We all know Moses, the physical manifestation of the Lord at the burning bush, If you've been in the class in Samuel, you'll remember Samuel was in the house of the Lord when he was called by Yahweh and then he was visited and Yahweh appeared to him in bodily form and he stood with Samuel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel at their commissioning, they both speak of Yahweh putting his hand on them to comfort them because they were hesitant. So like other prophets, I think Yahweh appeared in some physical manifestation to call and commission Jonah. It's not as we often imagine God speaking to us like the common charismatic movement of just that still small voice. It's a voice in your head. No, this was obvious. This was God commanding them. So like other prophets, I think Yahweh appeared in some physical way to call and commission Jonah. And it was this special physical manifestation of the Lord's presence that he ran away from. He knew Yahweh was all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. He was everywhere. But there was no escaping that. But he was going to escape that special revelation calling him to go to Nineveh. Surely God's holy special presence the manifestation of his glory, surely that wouldn't follow him to the ends of the earth where he had not yet been revealed. Surely God's glory and his presence would not depart Israel just to chase wee little Jonah. So he runs away, out of the temple, down to Joppa, away from this special revelation of God to him. He finds a ship, 
going to the ends of the earth. The verb for finds there, it often involves an unexpected discovery or good fortune. So from Jonah's perspective, the fact that he found a ship going to the ends of the earth, it promised a successful flight from God. It was a sign. Maybe he thought, if God really didn't want me to flee, surely he wouldn't give me this boat. Beloved, always be careful that you look for signs that it's okay to sin. God may give you some room to run, but if you're his, he'll pull you back. But don't ever use signs as an excuse to sin. So he finds this boat, he discovers this boat, and he paid the fare. In the ESV, it makes it sound like he paid for his own ticket on the ship. But in ancient Hebrew, in all the languages, there's no word for a fare or a ticket. The Hebrew literally reads, Jonah paid her wage. It's in the feminine. The only feminine subject in the whole scene is the ship. He paid the ship's wage. This suggests that Jonah hired the entire boat and the entire crew to leave immediately, as soon as possible. This is what the grammar indicates, and this is actually what Jewish tradition holds to, that Jonah paid to hire the entire boat, the entire crew, to leave as soon as possible. And Jewish commentators on this, they say that this would have been an astronomical price. It would have cost around 4,000 denarii, or 4,000 days wages. So take whatever your wage is, that's 11 years, 11 years of your wages, This wasn't cheap for Jonah to flee like this. Running away from God is more costly than we imagine. It's costly in more ways than one. But if he was going to Tarshish to spend the rest of his days fleeing from God, selling everything he owned wouldn't be too hard of a thing to do. Prophets were well known. He could have went down to the port anywhere along the way, sold everything he had, to flee to Tarshish, to hire the boat. He was willing to give up his life in Israel, his home, his retirement, his family. He was willing to give up everything to run away from his mission from God. He was willing to give up everything to ensure that mercy did not come to Nineveh. Again, we see his cold-hearted callousness here. Verse 3, it has a chiastic structure. I won't get into explaining that now. But the emphasis is what's in the middle, and what's right in the middle of that is Tarshish. Jonah was willing to go to the ends of the earth to Tarshish. He was willing to make great sacrifices, risking his life on the seas, on the seas for a Jew to go on to the seas with suicide. He was willing to risk everything to go to the ends of the earth in order to avoid bringing a message of hope that would result in God's mercy upon Nineveh. He couldn't risk Nineveh being shown mercy. And as we already read in chapter 4, Nineveh repents. God relents from destroying them. And so Jonah laments. He moans. He lives up to his name. He says, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew this would happen. Jonah knew deep down who God was. He knew that Yahweh was sending him there so that they would repent and God would relent from sending disaster. Jonah was so calloused He wanted nothing more than to see that wicked city destroyed. He gave up everything to make sure Nineveh would be destroyed. Fleeing to the other end of the earth, he was going to make sure no mercy reached Nineveh. What hard-hearted callousness we see. We leave the story here for now. Jonah has hired a boat. He's entered the boat. And he's peacefully headed to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But how about you? Are you at peace while avoiding obedience to God? Like Jonah, you find the means to disobey. You think that if God really didn't want you to go this way, that he would stop you? Maybe you've grown accustomed to your hard-heartedness and callousness toward those who are perishing. Maybe you go to great lengths to avoid serving him in this way? Maybe even at great cost? You'll pay to have someone else do it? We find here that we are not so much like Jesus, weeping and wailing over the lost, but more like Jonah, finding reasons not to obey. If you're like me this last week, you probably have some repenting to do. May we, like Travis mentioned last week, Let the truths of who God is wash over our hearts, fill our hearts with compassion, that we be willing to, like Jonah, give up anything, but not to avoid obeying God, but be willing to give up everything to obey Him, to share the hope of the good news with others. May we not be hard-hearted messengers like Jonah, but soft-hearted Christians who don't rejoice at the destruction of even the vilest of people. But we hope and we work and we pray and we preach to see them saved. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we know of Your great mercy because we have experienced it. May such mercy not harden our hearts toward unbelievers like it did Jonah looking down upon them for their sin and their abominations before You. But let us continue to look inward at our own heart and see the wickedness of our own heart, that we are undeserving and yet You saved us. Let the truths of who You are wash over our hearts that we might have compassion on others. Continue to soften our hearts in this way, O Lord, to be made more like Your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.